Good afternoon. It's Friday the 3rd of December 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Call News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio, as usual, on a Friday, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, uh, well, Patrick, uh, yesterday was, uh, was boost day. Uh, and uh, as we're going to come on to in a second, of course, that resulted in a huge advertising campaign in the uh, newspapers, but also uh, on the television. Um, so uh, Boris had his booster. Uh, he was very excited about that. Uh, the question is, what's he getting there, do you think? Getting a jab in an arm. Uh, this is what he's getting. Uh, who knows? Is it squalene or is it sailing? We'll, we'll leave that up to uh, people to speculate. So he got his badge, which he put on his tie. And, uh, you know, just like going to the dentist or whatever. But there you go. Uh, but, uh, of course, what's this all about? This new drive for uh, booster uh, jabs, uh, it's because we have the Omicron invasion taking place. The Omicron invasion, and uh, we'll run through the, the story. It's a fabulous story, Mike. Uh, it beats any 1960s science fiction film or B-horror film. Uh, let's take a look at the Omicron invasion here. Look at that dodgy character there with the mask and the cap. So what is the Omicron invasion, Mike? What exactly are we talking about? I think, and I'm not alone, of course, and I'll point to the author who, who said this so well, it's a cover story. It's a cover story. So the question is, what is Omicron a cover story for? The timing was just uncanny, wasn't it? It was a brilliant timing. In terms of Christmas, you mean? Yeah, in yeah. terms of Christmas, in terms of the rollout. So let's take a look at the cover story. What's the cover story? Well, exotic new variant makes landfall. That's the big headline, right? That's how we got started out of Africa, so being an African variant, it's really, really exotic and maybe more dangerous. And, you know, things coming out of Africa just tend to be that way. Well, that's how the Europeans and the people in the West tend to think anyway. And here's the kicker. The vaccinated people are catching COVID and they are really being infected by a variant, Delta or Omicron. That's why the vaccines uh, have become less effective. So that, that's kind of a play on uh, what's happening in the kind of skeptical alternative community. Uh, it's true that uh, according to the government's own statistics, according to everything, that those who are double vaxxed are coming in as COVID cases. That's, that's, a, that's a fact according to the data, right? So, but the government doesn't care so much about that. Why? Because they have Omicron. They've got Omicron now, just like they had Delta before. So the variants allow the government to keep this wheel running, right. basically, basically to infinity. Well, let's go back to the invasion. And then finally here, enter the booster. So what we've just shown you here is perfect segue into the booster. And this is what? It's booster day, isn't it? Booster week. Yesterday was booster day. Yesterday. Boost day. Boost day is how they're describing it. So, so uh, where does that take us? Well, in, in, ter in terms of where, where it takes us, let's take a look here. Uh, where it takes us is what's the real agenda behind this cover story, Mike? So the real agenda is to promote general fear and anxiety uh, going into the holidays here. Christmas restrictions, more testing, more quarantines. We're talking about flights, travel, restrictions, border closures, lockdowns, possibly lockdowns. And here's the other one, save the NHS. So now the narrative is shifting, Mike. It's save the NHS, get your booster to save the NHS, that get vaccinated and you will save the NHS. So before it was stay locked indoors to save the NHS, don't go outside, social distance, wear the mask, 
that saved the NHS, but now no, you need to get vaccinated to save the healthcare service. I mean, how much more can they wring this rag out? That's the question, but here we go. This, what I think is the real subtext here, which is a distraction from the mounting vaccine injuries uh, and deaths. So I, I think there's a lot of obfuscation going on on that front. So I think that's a, a, a big part of it. Yes, okay. And so I, I just want to point to this article here. This is uh, uh, John Rappaport here, a Pulitzer Prize nominated journalist, by the way, uh, and his headline was, The Omicron Deception, How Long Can They String Out the Mutation Stories by John Rappaport. Excellent. He's uh, at nomorefakenews.com. Check that out. That's where I was inspired uh, by the article that, uh, and the bullet points I've just shown you here. So here's the real story here, Mike. Look at this. This is pretty unbelievable. I just perused the newsstands and I see this yesterday. GPs may stop monitoring millions of patients due to COVID jab drive. So again, uh, stopping monitoring millions of patients because of the new booster drive. Can you believe this? So basically save the NHS by shutting down the NHS. Is that, that's basically what's going on here. It's a repeat of the original pandemic narrative, Yes, which was GPs can't see patients because it's too dangerous because of the spread of COVID. Now it's no, now Mike, the narrative is it, it's too, they're too busy. They're too busy because they need to get the jabs in arms, as Boris Johnson so often says. Jabs in arms. You need to get jabs in arms. So we'll go back to the uh, GP story here, and let's just take a look at this. So here, let's take a closer look here. Ministers want doctors. See the key words, Mike, the first three words there. Ministers want doctors free to help ramp up booster scheme. So this isn't something that's coming from doctors. No, this it, is a policy which is coming from central government. This is government. This is government. This is not COVID. This is not the Omicron invasion. This is not Delta. This is government. I just want to remind people that ministers may allow GPs in England to halt regular monitoring of millions of patients with underlying health problems as part of the urgent new blitz on delivering the boosters here. So, you know, 2020 to 2021, it was a COVID-only health service. And now 2021 to 2022, it's a vaccine-only health service. You can get in-person appointments with your GP if it's for... Vaccination. Vaccinations, you're right. So here we go. But here's the key word there. Take a close look. The bottom there, blitz. Uh, that's So what, the war narrative continues? The war narrative continues. So be part of the blitz. Do your part in the war effort. So they're really constantly pushing that uh, in the media here. And just so we're clear, booster jabs until 2023. This is the eye, one of the great propaganda rags in Britain. Probably if they gave awards out, it would win everything really this year. So Br Britain are going to pre-buy here uh, 114 million vaccine doses. So, you know, this is a great windfall for the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, it's absolutely uh, incredible. So uh, but we'll carry on here and see what else uh, we've got on offer here. Well, I took a peruse on the newsstand, Mike, and I saw the Daily Express. Look at that. Pretty attractive cover, right? What are they doing? Boost your immunity. It's an ad, actually, Her Majesty's government and the NHS. That's public money paying for that. Yes. That's the Express. So I thought, well, I want a little variety and see what the other papers are saying. And uh, well, there's the other paper there. That's the mirror, pretty much the same cover. 
And so we, so we move on and say, is there any other variety on the newsstand here? Any differentials? No, it's the Sun, same cover. And the Daily Star, one of the finest journalistic publications in Britain there. We only read the best, Mike. And they've all got the same ad. Look at this. Boost your immunity. Flu plus COVID-19 vaccines. Essential for the winter. So they're basically saying, get vaccinated, get boosted, get protected. It's your only option to survive. Let's take a closer look here. This is what the ad looks like. And you, you pointed out this, Mike, earlier, and I thought this was interesting. The double aura. Yeah. So the the blue aura is your flu vaccine and the yellow one is your COVID-19 vaccine. So there it's it's like the vaccine conveys super superpowers effectively, right? But so that's kind of you know in terms of propaganda this is this is like into the comic book. Yeah, it is, yeah. The comic zone, right? This is the superpowers. Okay, so this is what they're pushing on the front of every paper, pretty much, uh, in Britain this week. But let's look on the back. What's on the back cover? Well, there we are. There we are. The pregnant uh, woman and child needs to get boosted with the flu vaccine. So that's the back cover. I mean, how much is this costing? This is millions of dollars of, yeah, of advertising. Yes, it is, yeah. Part of that tranche of the billions. So let's take a closer look here. Uh, with the flu vaccine, the flu can be life-threatening and spreads more easily in winter, they say here in this ad. Many adults, mostly children, and all pregnant women are eligible for a free flu vaccine on the house. Don't have to pay for it. Get vaccinated, get boosted. So they're really pushing this on pregnant women, which is a conversation that is uh, we, we can have separately, but it's disturbing, to say the least. Uh, so the question is, uh, can this statement be justified? Well, we go back a couple of months and uh, uh, we discover from the gov.uk website that modelling suggests this winter influenza and RSV hospital admissions and deaths could be two times that of a normal year. Modelling suggests... Modelling? Uh, yes. Uh, no justification for that statement. Uh, it was just thrown out at the time. Uh, and uh, Sajid Javid at the time saying flu can be a serious illness and we want to build a wall of protection by immunizing a record number of people. Uh, with the nation getting closer to normal life, we must learn to live with COVID-19 alongside other viruses. Uh, and we're offering a free flu job to millions more people to help them uh, keep them safe this winter. Uh, the phenomenal scale of the COVID-19 vaccination program is a clear demonstration of the positive impact vaccination can make and I encourage all those eligible to get their flu jab when called forward. So the question is, what is the flu situation uh, in the world at the moment? Patrick, so let's go to the World Health Organization and look at the latest graph here. Uh, number of specimens positive for influenza by subtype. Um, and this is global circulation of influenza viruses. Uh, and what you can see there is it looks very impressive, very big bars there. They look like there's lots of uh, activity going on. Uh, but what you've really got to understand it, or look at is the, um, the scale on the left-hand side, because we have on the left-hand side the number of specimens from zero to 2,500 specimens. Now, if we look at a previous year uh, for this, uh, we find, in fact, that they adjusted the scale somewhat uh, in the previous year from zero to uh, 600 because the levels were so low. 
It looks bigger. It's, it gives the impression that it's bigger, right? It, well, it gives the impression that it's bigger. So the first graph that we saw there was right up to date. This is about, uh, this goes to week 26 or so of 2021. Uh, and if we go back even further and see how the graph was before, uh, well, in fact, we had uh, in week, what's that, week uh, 11 of 2020, mm -hmm. uh, we had uh, 25,000 positive uh, cases, or po positive specimens rather for influenza, uh, uh, which as you can see from, uh, from week uh, 17 onwards, basically disappeared for the whole of 2020 and 2021. So what the uh, World Health Organization has done, Patrick, is that they have adjusted the scale uh, in an attempt to uh, uh, persuade us that there actually is an influenza problem this year, uh, when in fact there isn't. And the question for me, Patrick, is um, where did influenza go? Uh, and of course, there are no answers to that. My, the question that I would like answered was, was it simply recategorized as something else? Well, Occam's razor would suggest that that would be the answer. I mean, that's the most sort of obvious and simple answer. And because it's the most obvious and simple answer, um, this is why the mainstream media, government officials, public health experts are running away, frightened from that actual question and yes. that answer. And, yeah, and mainstream journalists, why would they be doing that? Is it because COVID-19 has become a political issue? Is it because they are all so heavily invested in this narrative? They're so dug in on all the pro proclamations and articles they've written and speeches and talking points, they can't possibly backtrack now because to do that would be to admit defeat, wouldn't it? It certainly would. So um, so we're going to come on to the uh, the, the effects of, uh, of the Omicron uh, scandal in a second. But before we do, I just wanted to highlight if we uh, head over to uh, yellowcard.ukcolumn.org, um, the latest, uh, well, the latest stats will be changed over the weekend because, uh, because the latest uh, spreadsheets will come out from uh, uh, the MHRA today or so. But what I wanted to highlight here is if you click on the graphs tab at the top and we look at the uh, vaccination analysis charts uh, and the first graph shows the number of doses administered and this is based on the MHRA's data. And what we can see there, Patrick, is doses one and two for the three va um, main vaccines, uh, AstraZeneca, Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, but no sign of any boosters uh, at this stage. Now, there have been boosters uh, uh, given out, apparently, uh, but the MHRA doesn't seem to be um, listing those in their data at the moment. And so I just wanted to, to highlight that and um, ask why. Uh, what, why, is, why are, are booster uh, adverse reactions, are there no adverse reactions as a result of booster shots? Are they simply not being logged on the uh, yellow card scheme? What, what is the reason for that? Um, so anyway, the, the issue then is the impact that this is, uh, Omicron thing is having on uh, Christmas and on travel. The, the Omicron itself or the reaction or the fear of Omicron? The, the final one of those. Yeah. Uh, and the policy. The policy. Uh, the policy. And of course, uh, the British government uh, getting criticized heavily for uh, offering mixed messages. And the problem is that this is exactly what happened last year as well mixed messages nobody knew exactly what was going on people were going on holiday then they were ending up uh, effectively stranded in foreign countries because the rules were changing uh, and so the mixed messages has been a feature of this from the very beginning so 
Um, here is Tim Romney from Best Western. Uh, they, of course, run uh, various hotels, restaurants, these kinds of things. Uh, and they're pretty upset about this because they're saying we've had a week of mixed messages about whether people should socialize or cancel parties or not. And small independent businesses like our hotels are on the front line feeling the effects of that indecision. Again, these people don't appreciate that this has nothing to do with indecision. This is not that the government was incompetent about and really didn't know which way to go. And so they were get, some people were saying one thing and some people were saying the other thing. Uh, we can say with reasonable certainty now that this was intentional. Uh, this mixed message was absolutely intentional with a view to people cancelling parties and so on, because the intention is, as we've uh, mentioned many times uh, as part of the whole Great Reset deal and the Green New Deal, uh, is to see a complete change in our economy. Uh, and some of these businesses are not viewed as being desirable mm -hmm. anymore. Uh, and of course, if that applies for uh, small independent businesses, hotels and so on, uh, it also applies to the travel industry. And uh, so where where uh, are we left with that? Well, um, we've got a whole host of uh, of <coughs> excuse me, a whole host of uh, things happening. Uh, we've got France uh, and uh, Spain, uh, Portugal, all heightening their border rules. Uh, so unvaccinated British travellers aged twelve and over are now banned from going to Spain, uh, and from today, arrivals into France have to provide proof of a negative COVID test, even if they're fully jabbed. Uh, and in Portugal, anybody wanting to go there must have a pre-travel uh, PCR or lateral flow test. Switzerland requires British arrivals to quarantine for 10 days, whether they're vaccinated or not, uh, and so on. So um, so where does that take us? Uh, well, uh, Ms. Merkel is leaving her post as chancellor, uh, but uh, not without uh, her parting shot, and in this case, uh, her parting shot is that, uh, uh, well, she said the fourth wave must be broken. Uh, in view of this, it's necessary to make vaccination compulsory. Uh, we all hope it will be better uh, accepted on a voluntary basis. Um, so they're talking about making uh, compulsory vaccination the thing in Germany from February. But in the meantime, uh, of course, anybody who is unvaccinated uh, is not allowed to take part in uh, society, as it were, so uh, you will not be allowed to go to uh, uh, any kind of uh, restaurant or pub uh, and only to essential shops. So you don't get to buy your Christmas gifts this year unless you're buying them from the German equivalent of Tesco. So why, why, why February 1st? I mean, is, do they do they know something that uh, about the, is the virus going to leap out of the closet on January 29th? I mean, why don't they just do it immediately? Uh, are they giving people time to leave the country? <laughs> what these these are all <laughs> good these are all good questions. It's pretty unclear. Uh, just uh, just by the way, uh, since Merkel is leaving in a week's time, uh, this is a replacement. Olaf Olaf Schultz, uh, the mandatory vax policy is basically his policy, not hers. Uh, she uh, simply gave it her support, uh, and uh, and that has uh, is going to help push it through. But uh, what's interesting is that. It's not policy yet. Um, this will go to a free vote in uh, the German Parliament, so it it will not be uh, it will not be based on party polit political lines. Everybody gets to vote uh, on their own uh, basis. We're in touch with a lot of Germans, Mike, and and I know you know quite a few people in the continent as well. They're absolutely shocked about the state of affairs right now 
in their country, and they cannot believe uh, that Germany is receding back to this kind of totalitarian uh, state. And you know, as Germany goes, so does the EU, and so many different. Well, fronts. indeed, uh, but it gets even better, Patrick, because uh, well, what happens if you want to kill yourself? Well, this is the thing, uh, and you know, we're we're trying not to make any. Uh, German uh, cliche jokes uh, regarding the Second World War, but it's becoming increasingly difficult and it's becoming increasingly ridiculous. Look at this, the spectator. Uh, German euthanasia clinics refusing unvaccinated customers. So apparently, and let's just, you know, take a better look at that, get that <laughs> emblazoned on the back of your brain. So you can't die in Germany unless you're vaccinated. Basically, you, you don't be given permission to die unless you've had the jab. I mean, you can't believe that this is actually the case, but yet it, this is how ridiculous it's coming. So we thought they deserve a rosette there uh, with a sort of the ha handsome young uh, German lad there in the middle. You can work out who that is. But <laughs> anyway, I mean, come on. Like, it, it is ridiculous. It doesn't get any worse than that, does so. Okay, well, let's uh, move over to Australia for some slightly better news in Western Australia here. And thank you to the person who, uh, to the, our, the member that sent me this through. Uh, so BHP's COVID vaccine mandate at New South Wales mine, unlawful uh, Fair Work Commission fines. So uh, uh, the article here says that the full bench of the Fair Work Commission has found a decision by mining giant BHP to make COVID-19 vaccinations at a Hunter Valley mine mandatory was not lawful or reasonable. More than 30 workers uh, at uh, BHP's uh, Billiton Mount Arthur coal mine were stood down after being unable to provide evidence of the vaccination status. Lawyers for union officials fought against the mandate, arguing that there was a lack of consultation. Uh, and uh, I believe this is uh, yesterday. Um, the commission's full bench uh, said the decision was not covered by the Mines Enterprise Agreement for Workers. Uh, and uh, so the union which spearheaded the court action said that the decision was a win for the rights of workers and slammed BHP as arrogant. Um, so that's, uh, that's a positive development. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, in Western Australia and Perth, uh, it's not so good because the vaccine mandate is rolling out there. Uh, and this article here from Perth now is saying that uh, Western Australia vaccine rollout, some 39,000 West Aussie workers could lose job uh, over refusal to get COVID jab. Um, and uh, so uh, this is analysis, includes analysis from the Chamber of Commerce and Industry uh, saying that 3.7% uh, of Western Australia's labour force and 55,000 of the state's 1.42 million workers uh, will refuse the COVID vaccine and won't consider getting it, quotes, under any circumstances. Uh, and they're saying that the withdrawal of approximately 39,000 employees from the workforce due to their un unwillingness to be vaccinated represents a loss of around 2.9 billion uh, Australian dollars to productive work uh, from the Western Australia economy. But then in the meantime, uh, this uh, has actually happened for you know, people that are working in the public sector. So some mine workers, uh, police, fire, rescue, nurses, teachers, and others uh, were placed uh, their coats and various other things, hats, uh, you know, hard hats and so on, uh, with uh, suitable messaging uh, outside the Western Australian Parliament House uh, after being sacked by the Western Australian government. Uh, and uh, so they're saying, basically, the Western Australian government saying no jab, no job. Uh, and so if you want to go and have a look at that video, have a look on YouTube for comments on sacked uh, workers' shirts dumped at Parliament House, Western Australia. 
that was uh, from the 1st of December. Uh, and uh, it's about, I think it's about 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, it's worth having a look at some of the messages that have been left there. And, and I'm going to say, Mike, that's 30,000, 39,000? Yes. So there's 39,000 people who are going to vote in the next federal election coming up this spring. And they are not going to vote for probably the major two parties. And this is a trend that's happening all over the country. We spoke to Monica Smith from Reignite Democracy last week. And so their big uh, international protest is tomorrow. It's right. December 4th. There's probably a gathering at the London uh, Australian Embassy there and in other countries around the world. But so you're looking at a major realignment in Australian politics. And if this happens, and it looks like it may, if this happens, it's going to be a permanent realignment. This will be a permanent realignment because everybody in the country who is on this issue, who's on the side of this issue, sees what the government has done, what the potential of the establishment is. They've played their full hand, mm. the establishment. So there's no, the establishment can't come back, and this goes for other countries as well. They can't come back and say, oh, well, we didn't know at the time, or, you know, we didn't, uh, we weren't sure, and, you know, everyone was scared, and there was a pandemic. You will not be able to make that argument uh, pretty soon. I mean, it's, it, their window for making that argument is becoming smaller and smaller mm. and smaller the more they push forward with this agenda. So I'm going to say that um, that's, that's big news. To see that in Western Australia um, and, and the demonstration they had outside of Parliament, I mean, that, that's a very laid, that's the laid back sort of right. part of Australia. I mean, so if they're up in arms, that means the rest of the country is ready to rumble, basically. So right. we shall see. Uh, and so the question then is, Patrick, you know, what is the justification? Is there any justification for these mandates uh, and for the uh, the people, for people losing their jobs and so on? Uh, well, here is a letter posted in on The Lancet, uh, and it's called The Epidemiological Relevance of the COVID-19 Vaccinated Population is increasing. Um, so let's just have a look at some of the text from this. Uh, it's saying high COVID-19 vaccination rates were expected to reduce transmission of SARS-CoV-2 uh, in the populations by reducing the number of possible sources for transmission uh, and thereby reducing the, bar the burden of the COVID-19 disease. Uh, in the UK, it was described that secondary attack rates amongst household uh, contacts exposed to fully, fully vaccinated index cases were similar to household contacts exposed to unvaccinated in, index cases. And uh, the numbers that they're quoting here is 25% for vaccinated versus 23% for unvaccinated. So basically the same. Basically the same. Peak viral load did not differ by vaccination status uh, or variant type. Uh, and all these comments uh, are fully referenced, by the way, in this note. Uh, in Germany, the rate of symptomatic COVID-19 cases amongst the fully, fully vaccinated uh, and, quotes, breakthrough infections was reported weekly since the 21st of July 2021. And at that point, that was 16.9% uh, amongst patients of 60 years and older. Uh, that proportion is increasing week by week and was 58.9% on the 27th of October 2021, uh, providing clear evidence of the increasing relevance of the fully vaccinated as a possible source of transmission. And so there's the graph uh, that shows this over time, how this has developed. Um, the uh, article goes on to say, uh, in Israel, a, an outbreak was reported involving 16 healthcare workers, 23 exposed patients, and two family members. The source was a fully vaccinated COVID-19 patient. The vaccination rate was 96.2% amongst all exposed individuals brackets 151 healthcare workers and 97 patients. 
14 fully vaccinated patients became severely ill or died. The two unvaccinated patients developed mild disease. Um, and so it goes on. The US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention identifies four of the top five counties in the United States with the highest percentage of fully vaccinated population as high transmission counties. Uh, and uh, they say many decision makers assume uh, that the vaccinated can be excluded as a source of transmission. It appears to be grossly negligent uh, to ignore the vaccinated population as uh, a possible and relevant source of transmission when deciding about public health control measures. And, you know, this is extremely important because, as you know, um, the, the, the whole Omicron narrative is based on the danger of the unvaccinated uh, and that the, the unvaccinated uh, are the most dangerous section of society. And therefore, we're saying that the unvaccinated not allowed to go to shops in Germany uh, and, and so on. So, uh, so I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, firstly, the, the, the Africa's vaccination rate, especially Botswana in those countries, some of them are areas as low as 6%, right? right? So, I mean, in terms of the World Health Organization, the Bill Gates cartel, they're looking at those African countries and saying, we have to do something to get their vaccination rates up, even though they don't have a problem with COVID-19. Uh, so there's no massive pandemic or anything like that, but they still need to get their COVID vaccination rates up. People should be scratching their heads at some point and wondering why all these people who have a vested interest in the pharmaceutical industry, including the CDC, including the NIH in America, including Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and I'll go on and on and on, why are they pushing for, for universal vaccinations for a product uh, that supposedly is meant to protect people against something that they're not even at, at any risk of. And on top of that, the, the idea that the COVID-19 vaccine is immunizing you, okay? This is, this, is, this is taken as received wisdom. People repeat it all the time. How many times have you heard a politician talk, talk about, I've been immunized or you need to get immunized? Or the ads when you're going through the supermarkets, Mike, mm -hmm. the propaganda is coming through the tannoy now constantly and say, get, you know, get immunized with the COVID-19 vaccine at Boots or whatever. So um, it's constant. It doesn't immunize you. It doesn't stop transmission. It doesn't stop you from getting it. So you're not being immunized. So, so why are we using this term everywhere, everywhere? It's in print. It's politicians. It's uh, pharmaceutical executives. It's TV doctors on your morning programs. They're using and hosts and media people. So that, not only that, they, and natural immunity, natural immunity. How many peer-reviewed papers can we produce to show that natural immunity is more robust and longer lasting than the alleged synthetic immunity of the, of the experimental injection vaccine? I don't know how many papers, I can't count that high. The last time I checked, it was like 91, 91 peer-reviewed papers. It's on the Brownstone Institute's website. You can go look for yourself, go to Brownstone Institute's website, you'll find all of those peer-reviewed papers. So this idea that your natural immune system can't cope with COVID-19 or the Omicron invasion, okay, is patently false. It's provably false. It's patently ridiculous, but they're running with this narrative anyway. Why? We, we, we just told you why. No, it, it is patently false, and it's, it's obvious from the basic statistics, Patrick, because uh, the countries with the biggest problems are the countries that are most vaccinated. But anyway, let's just uh, end this section on Omicron with this 
uh, opinion piece in the mail from uh, Dr. Angelique uh, Coetzee, who's uh, of course the person uh, from South Africa, who the doctor from South Africa, who uh, basically uh, her words were t grabbed on by the various uh, uh, media and uh, governments uh, to uh, highlight the potential dangers of, of Omicron. So uh, what she's saying in this opinion piece, uh, as chair of the South African Medical Association and a GP with 33 years standing, I've seen a lot over my medical career, but nothing has prepared me for the extraordinary global reaction that met my announcement this week that I had seen a young man in my surgery who had a case of COVID that turned out to be the Omicron variant. Uh, this version of the virus had been circulating in Southern Africa for some time, having been previously identified in Botswana. Uh, but given my public facing role by announcing the presence in my own patient, I unwittingly brought it to global attention. Quite simply, I've been stunned at the response, particularly from Britain. And let me be clear, nothing I have seen about this new variant warrants the extreme action of the UK government uh, in response to it. No one here in South Africa is known to have been hospitalized with the Omicron variant, nor is anyone here believed to have fallen seriously ill with it. Yet Britain and other European nations have reacted with heavy travel restrictions on flights from across Southern Africa, as well as imposing uh, tighter rules at home on mask wearing, fines and extended quarantines. The simple truth is we don't know yet uh, anywhere near enough about Omicron to make such judgments or to impose such policies. In South Africa, we've retained a sense of perspective. We've had no new regulations or talk of lockdowns uh, because we're waiting to see what the variant actually means. Uh, we've also become accustomed here to new variants emerging. So when our scientists confirmed the discovery of, discovery of yet another, nobody made a huge thing of it. Many people didn't even notice. But after Britain heard about it, the global picture started to change. Only yesterday, I saw five more patients who had tested positive for the new variant, all had very mild illness. So at the moment, I'm afraid it seems to me that Britain is merely hyping up the alarm uh, about this variant unnecessarily. Yet the picture might look, might one day look different. Uh, I've yet to see older unvaccinated people infected with the new variant, for example, uh, and they may well present with the more severe uh, form of the disease. Uh, and she finished off by saying, but the reality is that COVID is something we've, uh, we have to learn to live with. Look after yourself, get your vaccines. Above all, don't panic. And this goes for governments as well. Well, again, we have uh, a well-intentioned person here, uh, Patrick, who doesn't quite get that there's a political agenda at work and therefore doesn't understand um, why uh, the, what she said was taken out of proportion in the way that it was and run with in the way that it has been. Sure. And, and some people might look at that last comment, Mike, and say, oh, she's, she's, she's pushing the vaccine agenda there at the end. And uh, so this is kind of like she's shilling for big pharma. Look, uh, most doctors are pushing vaccines. Okay. So, but what she said is absolutely true regarding the uh, uh, overinflation of the variant threat and the fact that the British government and the media grabbed onto it and used it to, to ram through their, the next phase of their agenda. She's right about that. So although she has the statement that you might disagree with it, the last sentence, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. She's the one who supposedly discovered the Omicron uh, invasion, uh, these, these nasty little creatures from another planet who've who've come and they're not even here. They're just, they're threatening to come. Mm. They're threatening to come. It's like Mars attacks. This is the level we're at. We're at that level right now.
Uh, we are. Bad Hollywood films. Uh, right. Well, look, uh, let's end this segment then, uh, Patrick, with something a bit more serious because uh, well, we've been talking about this. David Scott's been talking about this. But more professional athletes' careers ended by heart damage uh, from the COVID vaccine. More professional athletes and too many to list here. This is uh, the French freediving world record holder, uh, Florian uh, Dajori. He is also, he's out basically. And, and there's in this article here, this is by uh, Dr. Joseph Mercola. Uh, you can find it up on uh, 21stCenturyWire.com. It hasn't been wiped from Mercola's website yet. But we're, uh, one of the world champions are top-ranked mountain bikers as well, tennis players, ranked ATP tennis players, and the list just keeps going on and on. Triathletes, you know, some of these top Normally, this was just uh, something that would happen once in a while. It was just, you know, incredibly rare. And this is becoming a regular occurrence. And it's not like the media are honing in on it. Uh, no, quite the opposite. In fact, if you remember a few weeks ago, Patrick, the BBC, uh, ran a whole big story about... The, uh, something like they were estimating over 80,000 young people in the UK with undiagnosed heart conditions. And, and we said at the time, or we asked the question at the time, is this preempting, uh, you know, events with with uh, respect to the vaccine? And and I believe that that's what it was. Oh, absolutely. It was, they're getting out in front, uh, uh, trying to get out in front of the story by saying, oh, it's, it's, it's normal. There's all sorts of undiagnosed heart conditions out there. And the fact that there's so many professional athletes dropping dropping dead on the pitch or being forced to retire. It's nothing to worry about, nothing to see here. You didn't see it two years ago, but you're seeing it now. But don't worry, there's nothing to worry about. That's basically what the media is doing in terms of their doublespeak. It's really shameful. And the fact that if, if any media outlets are, are not pursuing this in a proper journalistic manner, in other words, not following the evidence and trying to draw some conclusions that might be in the public interest, then they are culpable. They are accessories to a cover-up, and that is there's no way you're going to get around that. And a lot of these people working for these news organizations are going to have a lot to answer for uh, in the very near future. Yes. Because how long is this? This is ridiculous. It's in your face right now, and and the fact that they're not covering it and it's not a national or an international outrage scandal is just really incredible. Um, okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options for you to help us out there. So if you are watching uh, for free, we do need your financial support and that would be very much appreciated. Uh, also do share our material on the various platforms. Okay, where does that bring us then? Uh, well, this is, uh, this is really, uh, Patrick, about uh, Uber legislation. Um, so... I'm starting this off with the Daily Caller here, and this is uh, former Representative uh, Bob Barr talking about uh, uh, Biden's infrastructure bill, which, of course, he signed into law uh, was a week and a half ago or so. Um, and the headline here is Barr, Biden's infrastructure bill contains backdoor kill switches for cars. Um, and so uh, what it's uh, saying is that um, uh, basically um, that the Legislation requires that by 2026, all manufacturers of new cars will put in uh, software which monitors the driving standards uh, of the person who is driving the car. Uh, and if those people are viewed as being uh, driving inappropriately, then the car will automatically turn itself off. Uh, or uh, And or uh, there's the option for some third party, whether that be the police or whoever, or whoever to disable the car remotely. Um, and uh, so, you know, but the point is, this was snuck in through uh, the much larger infrastructure bill. Now, if I remember rightly, the infrastructure bill 
had a huge number of pages. Nobody could possibly have, uh, have read it uh, fully. And the, the point is that this is starting to creep into the way that legislation is being created in the United Kingdom as well. It's something that in the United States you guys are used to, these sort of super bills that, that contain all kinds of stuff that, that is a mix, mishmash of all kinds of topics. Um, but that's not something that we normally see. So, sorry. I, I just want to comment on that. So I don't think it's going to end. I mean, this is being sold. It might get knocked back by, by Republicans because generally this is going to fall foul of people who are sort of more liberty-minded or constitutional-minded. But what is this? They're selling it. The Democrats are selling it as uh, in case you're, you're a bad driver or your driving habits are bad, like a computer could work that out, right? But if, if, the, if the capability of a kill switch, a remote kill switch, is implemented, it's not going to end there. It's not going to end there. And it's not even as bad as having you breathalyze before you get in the car. There, think about it. If your registration is late, you're, you're, you haven't pay, sent the money in for the insurance on time. If you have a parking ticket, if you have a speeding ticket, you will be immobilized. And here, how about this? If you've driven too far this week and you've, over, you, you've gone over your carbon credit, carbon footprint limit, uh, in the, in, under the new Green Deal, Build Back Better, Great Reset uh, utopia, you will not be able to drive because mm. you've already gone over your allocation. So that's the level of control with big data that government wants and that uh, the, the billionaire foundation people, the Greta Thunberg, the COP26 attendees, they want that level of control. Understand that and they will go for it. The only thing that's going to be standing between that level of control and, and you is going to be how willing you are to, to engage on this issue yes. because they're going for it. Make no mistake about it. Yes. Okay. So, so well, what, what about the, what's the situation in the UK? Well, previously up to now, legislation has been pretty much based on one topic and so on. But uh, we've been talking about the Police Crime and Sentencing, Sentencing Courts Bill for quite some time. It is unbelievably dangerous because there's so much stuff in this. So, for example, uh, here is the Times this morning. Police crimes, or I think this is from yesterday, uh, police crime sentencing and courts bill causing death of a child will mean uh, up to life in jail. So that's been dropped into uh, uh, an amendment for this bill. Uh, and, of course, it's very topical at the moment because we've got a child uh, who has just been murdered effectively by uh, its carers, uh, its parents. Uh, and uh, so this is an extremely emotive topic. And who is going to object to this piece of legislation uh, causing death of a child will mean up to life in jail? Now, the question is, why is that not the case anyway? Because that you're, you're effectively killing someone. But anyway, uh, but then we come on to this. Uh, government adds shop worker abuse amendment to the crime bill. So this is another amendment that has been added in the last. Uh, so remember, this, is already, this bill has already been through the Commons once. It's been through committee stages, it's been through the House of Lords, it's come back, I think, on, uh, on uh, uh, Wednesday, it came back to the, the House of Commons, and a whole bunch of new amendments. Uh, again, uh, government adds shop worker abuse. It, is this related to COVID? Uh, probably. Uh, and mask wearing and so on. And social credit uh, when, when it comes in. Right, indeed. Um, and then, it, uh, but it gets worse. And I, I'm not a fan of uh, John George Mumbiot by any means, but but this is a very uh, interesting article, and I do recommend everybody reads it. Uh, jailed for 51 weeks for protesting, Britain is becoming a police state by stealth. And so, what's he saying? Uh, this is proper police state stuff. 
The last minute amendments crowbarred by the government into the police crime sentencing court bill are a blatant attempt to stifle protest of the kind you might expect in Russia or Egypt. Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, shoved 18 extra pages into the bill after it had passed through the Commons and after the second reading in the House of Lords. It looks like a deliberate ploy to avoid effective parliamentary scrutiny. Yet in most of the measures, there's resigned silence. Among the new amendments are measures that would ban protesters from attaching themselves to another person, to an object or to land. So in other words, locked lock-ons uh, of the kind that we saw during the anti-fracking protest. These are effectively banned uh, in this new amendment. But or they, even the Newberry Bypass, where they were, uh, attached themselves to trees. Well, exactly. Uh, it, but, they, uh, but the point he's making here is that the, the, the terms used in the new amendments are so loosely drafted that they could apply to anyone holding on to anything. Uh, on pain of up to 51 weeks imprisonment. So we're not talking about a fine here, we're talking about up to 51 weeks imprisonment. Uh, it could also become a criminal offence to obstruct in any way a major transport works from being carried out again with a maximum sentence of 51 weeks, this Newbury bypass kind of thing. Uh, other new powers would grant the police the right to stop and search people without suspicion if they believe uh, that protest will occur in that area. Anyone who resists being searched could be imprisoned for, you guessed it, up to 51 weeks. And perhaps most outrageously, Monbiot says, uh, the amendments contain new powers that ban named people from protesting. The grounds are extraordinary. In a nation that claims to be democratic, we can be banned if we have previously committed protest-related offences and you're effectively banned from uh, taking part in any future protest. This bill is... One, as we've mentioned before, one of four bills, uh, one which has already become an act, which are utterly draconian, utterly totalitarian. Um, but th this particular bill is so huge, it's got so many parts to it, and some of them, uh, you know, would be legislation that you'd want to see, for example, related to, to, to child death and so on. But once you start mixing that up with... Uh, stuff which is about protest, which isn't really about police crime and sentencing, right? No. Courts, that's about protest. And you shove that into a bill, we're starting to see this American-style mishmash-style legislation coming in, which is extremely dangerous. It's designed to put a chilling effect on the right to free assembly and the right to free speech. That's exactly what all this is, because it's, people will look at that and say, I don't want to take the risk. So what are they going to do? They'll keep their mouth shut. They'll stay at home. Yes. And so where's the pushback from this in terms of government? Where is is there any review process in the House of Lords? It's I mean, been through the House of Lords. New these are new amendments that have gone in. They've been tacked and on. Nobody is particularly in the House of Commons saying anything about it at this stage. It's down to us as individuals to really start putting pressure on MPs. Uh, to start asking the right questions about this legislation and about the other legislation that's being pushed through at the moment as well. Or get new MPs. Well, but this will <laughs> go. This stuff will go through before there's the opportunity to get new MPs. Yeah, exactly. But then you have the the, the parties have a, a complete chokehold over the process with selection process. That that, and, that and, is true. And things like that. Incredibly corrupt. Where's the pushback? Well, we're waiting for it. Okay. Now um, here's the BBC and uh, Alex. Baldwin admits career could be over after a fatal shooting. And of course, what's this uh, about Patrick? Well, he's done this interview uh, with, well, with whom?
What's this, what's this guy's name? Oh, George Stephanopoulos. He is the top gatekeeper, former Clinton chief of staff. Uh, he was implanted into the media after his stint with the Clintons, and he has been gatekeeping ever since, Mike. Uh, so Alex Baldwin has done this interview with him. Uh, someone is responsible, but I know it's not me and this kind of thing. And it, it does seem to me, Patrick, that whenever somebody is, is you know, in a bit of trouble, uh, they, they roll out this, this type of person. So let's just uh, briefly have a look uh, at uh, the, the last big interview that he did a couple of weeks ago. He's the world's most famous and infamous spy, the man behind a series of intelligence reports containing explosive allegations of collusion between Russia and Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, the so-called Steele dossier. Now, former MI6 officer Christopher Steele is speaking out for the first time in a worldwide exclusive interview with our George Stephanopoulos, answering tough questions about his credibility, the dossier's accuracy, and that notorious claim the Russians held a salacious tape of Trump. Here's a sneak preview. Most of the world first heard your name about five years ago, but you stayed silent up until now. Why speak out now? I think there are several reasons. I think the first and most important is that the problems we identified back in 2016 have got worse, and I thought it was important to come and set the record straight. So there's a particular style to those interviews. They're uh, gentle questioning, soft questioning, and they all seem to include, why speak out now? Yeah, that's the can line. When you, when you hear that, why speak out now? When you hear that, you know this was a setup interview and it has a purpose. So in the case of Alec Baldwin, him coming out and doing this, uh, this puff piece with George Stephanopoulos is to get out in front of some legal challenge or, or prosecution that might be coming Alec Baldwin's way, because he's not just an actor in that film Rust, where the gun went off. He's he's a producer, right? So he's he's up for basically liability, more liability in that sense. So with Christopher Steele, we heard the magic words as well. Why speak out now? Well, what did he, what do you think it had to do with? Well, I think it had to do with the fact that a few days after he did that interview, uh, his main uh, source of information was arrested. Um, which is, is a bit embarrassing for him, but uh, it, it, it's it, it, what I find particularly fascinating about this. Patrick is he did this interview uh, three or four days before the arrest of of Igor there, Tenchenko. Yes, yeah. um, and it's been complete silence since. So uh, a number of mainstream outlets have attempted to get more comment from from uh, Christopher Steele over the arrest of Tenchenko, and silence, nothing. nothing. Nothing, because he did he did the setup with George Stephanopoulos, so that's to protect Christopher Steele, and he has this kind of ironclad, beautiful reputation with the left because they love what he's done mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the Steele dossier, even though the whole thing is a complete uh, was a complete fabrication. And by the way, um, how they frame uh, Igor Danchenko as his source, he was his accomplice. He was his partner. He worked with Christopher Steele to put together that piece of fantasy fiction that was allowed to run for like years, okay? It's still running. The hoax is still going. If you talk to people or you listen to uh, liberal mainstream media in America, they're still kind of running with it. Like oh, well, they are, and that they're saying they're saying, well, uh, Trump is partly vindicated, but basically, he still has to. There's still all this other stuff here, which has all already been discredited as well. Yeah. So, so, and the other thing was to protect Christopher Steele's reputation. 
to protect his reputation as a kind of, he's an asset. Mm. He's an intelligence asset. He got paid twice for the dossier. He got paid by the Clinton camp uh, for opposition research, and then he got paid as a source for the FBI. So effectively, he got paid for the same product or to talk about it, again, he got paid. So he'd been paid like two or three times for the same product. What a great business if you can get it. Yes. Fantastic business. So protect Christopher Steele. This is the name of the game. We gotta protect this guy. And we dug up, this is Adam Schiff, the congressman from California who ran Russiagate uh, for the Democratic Party. And he's talking to uh, Rachel Maddow in 2017. And then we'll cut to a clip from just uh, last week where he's doing the same thing. They're trying to paint Christopher Steele as this unimpeachable, respectable guy, and that uh, Igor Dachenko lied to Christopher Steele, and that's the real crime. He lied, like Christopher Steele's a politician or an elected leader or something. They've really elevated him. Listen to this clip. Watch this clip by Adam Schiff. It's unreal. Uh, and here I think there's a hope that if they can impeach Christopher Steele and they can impeach the FBI and DOJ, maybe they can impeach the whole uh, Russia investigation, uh, but that's not our purpose. Uh, it's really at cross purposes. We ought to be trying to figure out how much is accurate within what Mr. Steele reported, not uh, trying to uh, discredit him for some reason. You know, I honestly don't really understand what uh, what they hope to accomplish with this. Uh, maybe they can discredit Mr. Steele, although he's held in very high regard uh, within the intelligence community. Did promoted. You even read into the congressional record the Steele dossier. Um, and we know last week the main source of the dossier was indicted by the FBI for lying about most of the key claims in that dossier. Do you have any reflections on your role in promoting this to the American people? Well, first of all, whoever lied to the FBI or lied to Christopher Steele should be prosecuted. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are. Completely disagree with your premise. Uh, it's one thing to say allegations should be investigated, and they were. It's another to say that we should have foreseen in advance that some people were lying to Christopher Steele, which is impossible, of course, to do. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So you can see they've set up all of these sort of, you know, walls of protection for Christopher Steele. I mean, he is really, I mean, they're, they will do anything to protect this guy. And Christopher Steele is the source of the fraud, basically. He's the one who should be Indicted? Yeah, he should be indicted and much more than that. But he is absolutely, they're going to protect him at every turn. Um, so, uh, oh, just, just for the historic record, so people know, this is Adam Schiff in uh, 2017 here, September. Uh, unilateral subpoenas issued by the House Intelligent Majority uh, appear to be part of an effort to discredit Steele uh, rather than to determine the truth of the dossier. The dossier was fake. Most people knew that from the beginning. But anyway, this didn't age well, so we're going to give it that Tesco Vintage Cheddar <laughs> Award there for Adam Schiff. Did not age well at all, that tweet. Uh, no, of course, uh, a lot, part of the, the whole Russiagate thing was to try to discredit Trump, but it was also about uh, keeping the narrative in the public mind that uh, Russia is, is the great evil that's uh, attempting to interfere in all our politics. Um, and, uh, well, over the last few days, we've had uh, the NATO foreign ministers meeting, and we've also had the uh, a meeting of the OSCE taking place yesterday. Um, so let's just uh, have a look at what uh, Jens Stoltenberg uh, said, uh, because the the pressure is just unbelievable on Russia from the West at the moment. So we call on Russia to be transparent, to be transparent, de-escalate and reduce tensions. Any future Russian aggression against Ukraine uh, would come at a high price. 
and have serious political and economic consequences for Russia. So he was basically uh, you know, attempting to uh, claim there would be more sanctions uh, and so on. The political message is that Russia does have no right whatsoever to in interfere in uh, the process of uh, potential process of NATO uh, of Ukraine, sorry, joining NATO. So really? he's, <laughs> yes. So, you know, he is saying uh, Ukraine is a sovereign state. They make up their, make up their own mind about what they do and so on. But Russia is not a sovereign state. No. It, it doesn't have a right no. to, to, to be involved so, in that. So here's okay. what he said. Ukraine is a sovereign independent nation and every sovereign independent nation has the right to choose its own path, including what kind of security arrangements it wants to be part of. Um, so uh, this was, uh, this was uh, um, the NATO foreign ministers meeting. And uh, one of the other people that were there was uh, Antony Blinken, of course, the United States Secretary of State. Uh, and he was pretty aggressive about uh, what he was saying about Russia. Uh, we don't know whether President Putin has made the decision to invade. We do know that he's putting in place the capacity to do so on short notice. Uh, and should he so decide, we must prepare for all contingencies. So, so the, the language is there. Uh, that was uh, a few days, a couple of days ago. Then yesterday uh, was the OSCE uh, meeting. And uh, well, here's Blinken uh, meeting with Lavrov. And uh, initially, uh, it looked all very friendly. There were handshakes and, uh, and smiles and, uh, well, you go first uh, and so on. Uh, but uh, once that meeting was done, uh, Blinken was straight back out with the uh, aggressive rhetoric once again. Um, and uh, uh, it, was, it was very hard language, very much Russia ag aggressive, the aggressor. Uh, Ukraine, well, we're going to protect Ukraine at all costs. I mean, the the reality is, Mike, Ru Russia's always had the uh, capability to invade Ukraine uh, for since the beginning of the Ukraine. So it, because they border each other and all of Russia's military assets are, a lot of them are clustered around the Black Sea uh, already, okay, would what, what would Russia gain from invading uh, Ukraine? Probably nothing but international scorn and a massive headache. Probably so. Is it in the, is it in Russia's interest to invade? No. But the question is, would Russia go to war, or would they be? Are they prepared to go to war over uh, the West, uh, ca capturing Ukraine and making it a part of NATO? And the question is, yes, they are. Yeah. They are willing to do that because it's absolutely in their national security interest. Just as if China and Russia had some kind of global military alliance and Mexico. Mexico agreed to join Russia and Canada agreed to join Russia and China and then they would have uh, military assets uh, on their along the US border the US would be prepared to fight and go to war over that as well um, so the uh, the narrative from uh, some of the British media Channel 4 news for example last night uh, was you know Russia had effectively captured the Crimea the south of, of uh, uh, Ukraine and the Donbass in the east. Uh, and obviously Russia uh, getting very close to uh, Belarus at the moment. Uh, and so the narrative that's being built is that uh, effectively the Ukraine is being encircled uh, uh, by Russia uh, at the moment. So, well, uh, Mr. Blinken was not the only person to meet uh, Sergei Lavrov yesterday at the OSCE. Uh, the wonderful Liz Truss uh, was there as well. Oh, another heavyweight. Yes, indeed. Um, and, uh, well, uh, you may be wondering what this particular official is looking at uh, and uh, well, you, you may have to make uh, you know uh, pause the video and, and look at this a bit more closely 
but unfortunately, if you do look closely at uh, what Liz Truss has in front of her, her book is upside down. Uh, so I'm not really sure why, whether she normally reads upside down or maybe she was passing a message to Lavrov or something. Yeah, maybe showing Lavrov a, a, maybe some kind of a, yeah, a note or cheeky message or cheeky something. message or something. Yeah. But, but anyway, uh, yeah, uh, not quite sure what that was about. But uh, what's the Russian response been to all this? Well, let's uh, have a look at what uh, Putin himself has had to say. The Russian Federation is concerned to an extent over the major military exercises carried out near its borders, including the Black Sea just recently. Uh, and this is fair comment. When strategic bombers were flying just 20 kilometers away from our border, armed with precision weapons and potentially even nuclear weapons, all this poses a threat to us. The narrative, Patrick, that we maintain, and we've maintained it through Russiagate, through uh, Integrity Initiative, through Skripal, through everything, is that it's Russia is the aggressor. Russia is moving its troops up against its borders, and this is a threat to uh, to the Ukraine. The, the truth of the matter is that for the, the last five, 10 years, we have systematically been encroaching, uh, pushing NATO exercises closer and closer to Russia's border. And what is Russia supposed to do under those circumstances? Not to mention that uh, the, the US, along with its allies, uh, orchestrated a coup in Kiev in February of 2014, that's exactly what it was. Everybody knows it. We the phone call intercepts were were released. I mean, it's so. I mean, does that not factor into this story at all? And that that coup and the lustration. Lustration is where you uh, you'll deny certain people in your country um, access to parliament and lawmaking. And this is what they did in Kiev, Mike. Um, in uh, after the uh, coup of the Maidan coup. They basically told the uh, representatives from Russian-speaking Eastern Ukraine, uh, you're not welcome here right. uh, in Kiev. So, I mean, that's what caused this, the current civil war. The, what happened in Crimea, well, that was more or less academic. Uh, R Russia uh, has all of its Black Sea naval fleet and everything is positioned in Sevastopol. Uh, Crimea is majority Russian. And they had a referendum. I think it was ninety-five percent mm. voted to join the Russian to rejoin to rejoin the Russian Federation mm. because Crimea was part of Russia before Khrushchev gave it away. Uh, I believe in nineteen fifty fifty-four. Mm. Okay, so it, it's more of a reunification of Crimea and Russia in the same way that East Germany was away from Germany for a similar amount of time. Yeah, and then it was reunified. Of course, that was much different. Uh, uh, situation, but you don't have any of this context or any of the historical context in any of the discussions of this. It's all just emotive hyperbole coming from the West, and and they're saying, oh, they they Russia invaded the Crimea. They didn't have to invade Crimea. Crimea saw the Crimeans saw the basket case that was forming in Kiev and said, well, we don't really want any part of this. Yeah, and this is why they rejoined uh, the Russian Federation. Uh, so the question is, what uh, what is Russia? Uh, what is Ukraine doing? Uh, and uh, well, here's uh, Vladimir, Vladimir uh, Zelensky, uh, the Ukrainian president. And some of the language that he's been using in the last couple of days has been quite interesting. We must tell the truth that we will not be able to stop the war without direct negotiations with Russia. Uh, I'm not afraid of a direct conversation with them. We're not afraid of a direct dialogue. This I haven't heard this from uh, the U Ukrainian government before. 
Um, and so perhaps this is a, a more positive direction to be going in. Very positive, but very dangerous thing to say, considering that, uh, as we remarked on this program uh, last week, uh, that um, you know the Ukraine is is completely captured, you know, from by, by the West. Yes, uh, there's no doubt about that. So Zelensky himself is walking on thin ice by making such statements. Yes. Um, well, on uh, Wednesday's program, we uh, covered. Uh, the new boss of MI6 and his uh, speech, uh, his first public speech, but uh, he did more that day. He was also speaking uh, to BBC Radio 4. He was, he was. Uh, Mr. Moore was speaking to Radio 4. He's known as C, by the way. That's his nickname in intelligence circles here. So this was the headline, MI6 boss warms of China debt traps and data traps. This is a new term that has been introduced, the data trap. We know about debt traps, and you can have a nice debate about that. Let's just look at what the Russian press is saying. Here's RT. China accuses MI6 chief of pushing fake news. So they would never do that, would they? <laughs> the Chinese are, are reacting pretty, pretty quickly. They're a lot more um, active, let's say, on this type of rebuttals on media. But let's just go back uh, to the uh, BBC Radio 4 coverage here. And so he's basically describing a chronic problem with Russia and Ukraine, with Russia posing an acute threat to the UK. How exactly does Russia pose an acute threat to the United Kingdom? I'm not aware of any such acute threat. Are they planning to invade the UK? This is a very good question. Or, or how's that going to, how's that, how's that going to go down? I mean, honestly. So, I guess that means UK interests would could conceivably be anything in the world of entangling alliances, right? So let's just take a look. Let's break down some of the things that the intelligence chief has said here. So he's warned that China has a capability to harvest data from around the world. Wow, no one else has that capability, right? No, not at all. Look. The reason, the main reason that uh, Western intelligence agencies and some Western politicians were so uh, against uh, Huawei equipment being rolled out onto the UK's uh, and Western uh, 5G networks wasn't because of the harvesting of data by China. It was the fact that uh, it wouldn't be Western uh, telecoms kit going on, going in there, and so it was going to be harder for the Western agencies to harvest. The data, um, the accusations that we make against Russia and China, of course, uh, are accusations that we really should be making against ourselves. Yeah. So this is this is World War Three in, in the world of big data. Big data is the new gold or the new oil, as they say. Uh, and so he, he's he's saying um, supports a closer MI6 intelligence agencies in Britain support closer links with technology partners and speeding up the vetting process of new tech savvy. Recruits and what are they going to be doing there with the intelligence partners? Uh, the the technology hoovering up data and passing it along. Thank you very much. Big tech. So in one and just out of the in one breath, he's saying China is harvesting our data and that's a big threat. And then he's saying we need to partner with big tech and we need to get all these new tech savvy recruits uh, to do what? Well, to harvest data basically, and then who knows? Use it to erect a police state. Well, we'll see about that in a minute. So on the alleged Chinese data trap, this is what the intelligence boss has said. If you allow another country to gain access to really critical data about your society, over time that will erode your sovereignty and you will no longer have control over the data. So it sounds good, doesn't it? It really does. But uh, 
he goes on to saying that's something which I think the UK we are very alive to and we've taken measures to defend against it. So again, how much of this is actually being done by the British and the American governments, by the Five Eyes countries? Quite a lot, mm. quite a lot. And are they using private companies to do it? Yes. Oh yes. And so how, where's the transparency there? So again, it's all being projected against China. He's talking about sovereignty. These are all good terms. It all sounds really good. So then we'll just go over to this, this article here by The Spectator. And so the headline is, we, we need to act now to block Britain's social credit system. So the implication here is that Britain is going for a Chinese-style big data police state. And this is a fairly mainstream publication here, isn't it? This is Ross Clark. There is some good material in The Spectator these days, not as much as we'd like, but there's some good material here. And he's saying there is a model for what will be coming our way if we do not resist vaccine passports and electronic ID cards, China's social credit system, which blacklists people for numerous antisocial offenses from crossing the street on a red light to failing to sort their recycling and uses the information to deny them the right for example, to buy rail and airline tickets. Okay, that's actually true. So I, I, I had in mind that this would take two to five years for a vaccine passport scheme to morph into a Chinese social credit system. In fact, it took two weeks. And he goes on to describe the rollout of this. Um, we'll go here. The, this is the NHS Health app. So the government is planning to introduce a health app in January, which will monitor our, our shopping, our exercise levels, our intake of fruit and vegetables, and reward us with virtue points, which we can exchange for discounts, free tickets to what kind of event is not clear, probably a vaccinated event, uh, and other goodies. And, and here we go, Capita and Circa, the usual beneficiaries of demented government schemes, are reported to be bidding for the chance uh, to run it. So what are we talking about here? Well, as always, we're talking about money. Big data is big money here. This is from the register in September. Big data means big money for UK government is two billion pound tender mooted. And they're talking about the, uh, the new policy by the UK government and the needs it's going to have in terms of ro rolling these pro projects out. Big data and analytics is emerging as an evolving capability with its prominence heightened by COVID. Okay, so again, COVID is the trigger for this. The national data strategy and the implementation of its mission to reinforce the requirement to access and interrogate government data more effectively to improve public services. To improve public services. That sounds good. Everything becomes digital. Everything, every piece of information. It needs to be accessed, needs to be interrogated, needs to be collated, and then needs to somehow feed into some kind of a policy decision, yes. right? Isn't that what it's for? And you can go and check out the government's the national data strategy policy paper here. If you want to interrogate this paper, it's up on the government website here. And it is very interesting once you start combing through, especially, Mike, when you start combing through and seeing what parts of this new, uh, this new gold rush, this new big data gold rush could be farmed out to transnational corporations and is positively frightening, okay? Bad enough when the government's doing it, but when they're basically tendering it out to these firms that are basically black box firms, you know, very little transparency. Um, that's the future. 
And this is where this is where I think this government is heading. Uh, well, just to, to give an idea of of where I see the future going, um, we were talking about uh, your driving standards in in the infrastructure bill. Uh, that data goes to the insurance company. Now, now you've got a tailored insurance policy based on your driving history and your and not just not just whether you've got a speeding ticket or or two, uh, or whether you've had an accident. But actual real-time data on how you've been driving your car. Mm. Uh, this is uh, this is, uh, and, and that converges with social credit. Uh, that it, database. It does. So the, everything's going to converge. Uh, you think about uh, at the moment this, the fact that uh, many people are not able to access uh, medical uh, resources uh, because, for example, they don't wear want to wear a mask. So the the GP won't allow even if you get a face-to-face -face, uh, uh, appointment, they're not allowed in. Um, this uh, takes it to a whole new level um, where everything that we do or, or the right to interface with any service, the right to, to buy a product uh, is, is not only linked to, to the app on your phone, but it's also linked to your bank account with uh, central bank digital currencies and so on. It is quite a direction we're heading in. And the nature of these techno boffins is they want to merge everything. They want to have, you know, to bring the capabilities together to cross reference the databases in order to, it's like one sort of hive. They want to basically include everything. And this is going to end up with the most insidious levels of, of control over the individual. And that's pretty much, I would say, the end of uh, your sort of post-enlightenment uh, democratic or constitutional uh, phase of Western civilization. Yes. That's it, it's over. Uh, if, if you're gonna allow this to, to keep going at pace. Um, there, there is something to be said that not everything in the past that wasn't technologically linked by data was bad. Mm. We have to accept it that some things were good and converging everything to have one giant hive mind might not be a good idea. Just stop and think about that for a minute. Okay, well look, we will leave it there for uh, today. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Patrick, thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. as usual on Friday. Hope you have a great weekend and we will see you then.